welcome to the Smokies and Wine podcast with JB and Jamie with the best guests, wine and chat. You know it makes sense. Sponsored by Clackenview Wealth Management, working with you today to plan for your tomorrow. Welcome to the next edition of the Smokies and Wine podcast. We are delighted to have Liz McColgan-Nuttall, MBE, with us today. Welcome, Liz. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me on. You do. And today, because it's virtual, Liz can't be sharing this with us, but we are enjoying a Domaine de Toulouse Chardonnay from our good friends at Wine and Something. So cheers, Jamie. Cheers. <laughs> cheers, Liz. Sorry that you can't uh, skip away. I'll drink my water. The things we have to do at 10 o'clock in the morning, you know? Well, actually, it's about half 10 now because you were pretty slow coming on the chat. We actually thought you'd done a runner. Aye, I'm pretty good at that, but there was a bit of uh, media issues. Oh, that, that, joke, just went, that joke just went flying by. Yes. <laughs> that went flying by like a drugged up Russian. <laughs> <laughs> now, we're doing a series on inspirational women. We couldn't do this without having having you on it. Uh, we do want to have a look back over your, your career with you. The easiest place to start is always the beginning. You stayed not far away from us. We are both based. You were, you were in Dundee, but just for everyone, what, what got you started in, into the running in the first place? I think it's pretty much the same as, as most people. Eh? Like, you know, I lived on a lot of different council estates around Dundee and things, and uh, there wasn't an awful lot going on, like parents in night work and all that sort of stuff. So when I moved up to St. Saviour's High School, I kind of like did any sort of sporty class that was going on, like, you know, lunchtime after schools and all this sort of stuff. I was actually involved in a fight in the corridor and Phil Cairns, the PE teacher, uh, separated us. And it wasn't my fault I was fighting, by the way. I know a lot of people say I'm feisty, but I'm not that feisty. Was that a big lad, eh? <laughs> no, no, it was a bit of bullying and stuff. And, you know, at the end of the day, you have to stand up to it or, you know, it just goes on and on and on. So I chose to stand up to it this day. And obviously Phil caught us at it and separated us. And, you know, I think he just kind of saw something in me and thought, like, you know, director to sport and try to engage her and um so he sort of took me under his wing really and encouraged me to you know do hockey and um he used to put us out on class runs around the the school then after a couple of weeks of doing that he advised me to go along to the Dundee Hockley Harriers because he had a mate there that was a coach a guy called Harry Bennett and I went along and joined Harry Bennett there was four girls from the school that went and then after about six months, there was two of us left. I just stayed. I just loved it. It was something that really engaged me because I didn't have an awful lot in my life as a youngster. And I think running for me uh, and my mindset was just very engaging because it was something that I could do, you know, just on my own. I didn't need a lot of support to do it. And, you know, I just got on and done it. And I really, really enjoyed the challenge that running gives you. You know, you've got to really challenge yourself when you're running and it's hard. And it kind of just suited my persona under Harry Bennett's wing. Um, he took me to, you know, from not a very, very good runner, a bit overweight as a child to someone that, you know, by the age of 17, I was ranked third in Britain and um, I got off the scholarship and went, you know, Harry paid for my flights and stuff and off I went and that just changed my world because before I went, I was working in the Duke Mill, you know, sort of 5.30 to 5 at night, wasn't very conductive to running and health and um for me, you know, getting that opportunity to go to the States was just life, life turning, uh, life changing. And I was very, very lucky that I had the support of Harry Bennett and an uncle who actually paid for me to go. You know, I stayed four years in the States. And then when I came back, you know, that was when I sort of uh, 
introduce myself to the world of athletics. Were you a natural runner because you grew up in Whitfield? No, I wasn't running away from people for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't. I, I think I obviously have a natural tendency for endurance, but I wasn't a natural runner. I mean, when I was young, you know, obviously the background of myself, you know, diet wasn't very good back then. You know, it was fried bread, uh, sausages, chips, you know, beans. That would be about it. Some days, no meals, you know. Um, a lot of homemade soup type stuff like that. So diets weren't very good and I was a wee bit chubby. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't like, the, I'm actually lighter now than I was even as a child. So, you know, I wasn't one of these kids where if someone saw me running, they'd be going, oh, wow, she's superb runner. You know, look at her. She'll be really good. I wasn't like that. You know, I was a very, um, I was a very sort of single-minded person. I was a person that, um, you know, if somebody said to me, you can't do that, I'd just practice and practice just to prove them wrong because I hated getting told I couldn't do anything because everybody told me in my life that I couldn't do it. So, you know, it used to really irk me um, that people just assumed, you know, that I wouldn't be able to do something. So, I, you know, and I think it's just a natural instinct that when you're the youngest of four and, you you know, you've not got a lot of support around you, you, you have to sort of bring yourself up and have to be quite strong-willed. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the way I grew up. And, you know, I kind of did things myself all through my life. You know, and for me, it, you know, it kind of suits that trait of an endurance runner because an endurance runner is quite a solo person anyway. Um, you know, you need to just get stuck into it and go on with it. You know, my early years, I wasn't fantastic. You know, I was decent. You know, I'd win like Dundee schools or something. But, you know, if you were looking on where was I ranked in Scotland, I would probably be definitely in the top 10 of girls my age. But, you know, probably about fifth or sixth or, you know, fourth, fifth or sixth, not the one, two or three. And there was girls that were always better than me. But um, it was just, it was just a, a sport that really became just involved part of my life. You know, Harry took me under my wing. He was like a second dad. You know, I spent loads of time with him. People that was at the running club then became my friends. You know, I had no friends at school. Um, I very, I very quickly lost all that because of me doing something completely different and alien that they just couldn't understand. Yeah. And I got bullied. You know, to high do about it. You know, I got a lot of hassle about it. But you know, at the end of the day, for where I was and as a child and what I was doing in my life as a child, it was a saving grace to have running there. Do you think it was just pure determination and hard graft? Because I'm not, I'm not trying to be cheeky, but you weren't the most elegant of runners. Like you no. were el elbows out, you know, was it just pure determination and hard graft that got you through? At the end of the day, what do you term elegant? No, no, I know what I mean. I'm not being cheeky, but you know what I mean? <laughs> no, but you know, when you look at a runner, all you look at is their hip and legs down. And to be honest, I was very efficient. Yeah. You know, I might have had a bit of a curved back, I might have had a bit of elbows out, nobody's perfect in style. But if you look at how my legs move, I'm very much an outward, you know, and a very efficient, you know, technically from lower limb down, I'm a runner. And um, that's, where, that's where it counts, upper, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, upper, uh, big, big heart and lungs, you know, always, always, always been, I, you know, naturally. I mean, I remember being 12 and I wanted to go and run a race uh, in Camperdown. And I ran all the way from Frontry along the Kingsway to Camperdown, which is a lot of miles. Mm -hmm. And because I was only like, I think it was about 11 at the time, I wasn't, I was too young to enter the race. So I just jumped in anyway. And I ran a half marathon and ran the whole way back up to Frontry. You ran to the race, ran the race, and then ran home after. Yeah. So I, I had that, like, you know, I've always had an abundance of natural endurance. And, you know, genetically, I think, you know, I've got that predisposition to be an endurance person but you know whether whether I would have um, ended up being a, a runner is just by sheer luck um, you know and, and circumstances 
but um, obviously endurance running really, really suited me for just the natural endurance that I had in my mindset. As I say, I, I worked exceptionally hard to get to the level that I actually attained. What was it like then, going as a, a, a young woman working in the jute mills, going to America, which, and I don't know, but I, I never went to America when I was young, so I don't know if that was your first experience of America, but going from a young girl in Dundee all the way to America, yeah. what was that like? It was really difficult because like, um, I hadn't travelled outside Scotland before and I'd never been away from my, my family. At the time, there was myself, my sister Karen, my mum and dad were staying in Canoosky and I was still sharing a room with Karen at that age. Karen was working in Timex and it was really, really, like when I got the call, I just thought it was somebody messing about and I just put the phone down and says, no, I'm not going. <laughs> and by the way, like, you know, I left school at 16, so I didn't have the qualifications to even go to university. You know, I was working in the jute mill and I, I was working for £23.50 on a YTS scheme. So, you know, chances are, you know, the future wasn't bright. And um <laughs> When 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 I got the call, I was just thought thought it was just a, a crank. Then I don't know how the guy he was a recruiter. I don't know how he got my coach's Harry's number. And Harry phoned my mum behind my back. He came up and had a meeting with my mum and dad, and he said like, you know, if you don't let her run and let her see the world, she will end up doing nothing. She's just going to end up in Dundee, you know, sort of like just doing what she's doing and you know running can really let her see the world and you know it's a good chance of an education and all this sort of stuff so he actually forced me um I I, I wasn't for doing it and him and my uncle Alec actually forced me to go and and go out to college but because I didn't have the the qualifications I had to set an SET test which allowed me to get into a junior college. So I went to Rex Idaho, which is a junior college for a year. And lo and behold, it was a Mormon school and I didn't even know what a Mormon was. So when <laughs> I went there, that was eye-opening because, you know, it was this sort of religious, like religion I'd never heard of before, never travelled to out of Scotland before. And it was really, really hard to adjust to all this sort of new sort of restrictions and things that they expected you to do about reading Bibles and things like that. And I'm like, well, Book of Mormon and, and things like that. So it was really quite difficult at the start, but I found my way. And like after about three months, I really kind of settled down and I thought, right, okay, I'm, I'm getting to the classes. I get time off to train. That's the most important. And so after a year, I'd won every national junior collegiate title that you could possibly win both on right. cross country and track. And then I got, um, I got recruited from, all the Division One four-year schools. You know, I then sort of flew around America, looked at the schools, and then went for my best option, which was, for me, it was the University of Alabama. And the reason I went there was because they, at Rexburg, Idaho, I'd actually met um, Peter, my first husband, Peter McCoggan. We had ended up, um, you know, uh, dating and things like that, and we had decided that, you know, yeah, we, we, you know, we had a future together and whatever. So part of my scholarship deal was that they would let Peter come with me. So I kind of got two for one. So we went to Alabama. <laughs> and uh, so we, we we both went to Alabama and we had a fantastic uh, running career there. And, you know, the coach there was absolutely fantastic because he was a bit different from most of the other American coaches because he actually, when I first went out there, he said, look, I know you've got like Commonwealth Games coming up and that you wanted to run really, really well in Europe. He says, all I need you to do is run 
regionals and nationals for us. And then, you know, we'll make sure that, you know, you can accommodate all the races that you need to do in Europe when you go back, which is really difficult, different because a lot of the American schools would just say, forget about the races back home. You're here, you're on scholarship. You know, you do what we want you to do and follow yeah. our programme. Yeah. But he was, he was really used to working with international athletes. And so I, I was really lucky that, you know, I was able to go into a school that allowed me to actually follow the school programme and support the school. They also supported me with my sort of dreams and ambitions out with what the school was. So it worked really well. And when I went to Alabama, um, you know, I, 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 my running and everything just gelled and put a lot of work in. And I, I came back, actually, you know, I left Scotland a runner, but came back an athlete. What year was this, Liz? Well, I came back from Alabama in 85 because the first year that I came back was the qualifying for the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh. So I actually sort of came back to qualify for the Commonwealth Games and that. So I won my first British title that year because the, the British 10,000 metres was the trial for the Commonwealth Games to get the time. It was my first 10,000 metres. It was my first British title that I ever won. And they had a stupid rule that if anybody got lapped, you had to drop out. And when I came when I came back from the States, like nobody really knew, you know, just how well I was running and I actually lapped everybody in the field. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you all have to drop out. Well, I, I, there used to be two, I, I don't know if you remember much about running, but there used to be two Welsh. Uh, identical twins that used to run called the Tubi twins, Angela and Susan. And both of them were on for qualifying times for Wales. And Susan got stopped. She was third. And Angela fought with the with the, the volunteers, the, the stewards. And she actually, you know, was dodging them every lap. And she finished <laughs> and actually got the qualifying time right. as well, but with a lot of like pushing and shoving to do it. But we, we kind of sometimes when we meet up, we always laugh about that. Like, you know, how it is such a silly rule, like, you know. <laughs> so you almost came back basically as a sort of surprise package then, but being out in America, no yeah. one knew just, like you say, how good things were going. Yeah, I mean, I won the NC2A title out there, which was the first time non-American had won, like, um, NC2A title, first UK athlete to ever win it. So I won that um, indoors, and, like, Ronald Reagan gave me the freedom of the city of Tuscaloosa, which was a, you know, really big honour back then. But, you know, because all my running was done stateside, it didn't really make it all the time, yeah. you know, to the UK. The press and, wasn't what it was and things yes. like that back then as well, you know, social media. Pre-internet. Yeah, so, um, so like, when I came back, it was kind of like, yeah, she'd been running well, but there was not really any pedigree to say that I would go on and win the Commonwealth Games or come home and, you know, win a British Championships and that. I was Yeah, yeah she'd been running well, but... Um, not, nothing like nothing outstanding and then you know the, the big thing was the big setup was when I came back and you know I, I ran so well at the trial front ran a British record and lapped everybody and then the next big thing was obviously going into the Commonwealth Games and winning Scotland's only gold in 96 so kind of led on to like well here I am and the Commonwealth Games to me was like you know just a, a massive massive step up to a big big stage Were you expected to win Liz? No For the Commonwealth? No, the, the, the favourite was a girl called Anna Dane. She was world record holder. She was dominant. She was the best uh, women roadrunner in the world at the time. So, you know, it was a, she was, she was the um, the favourite to actually win. I think she had won the 3,000 metres at the Commonwealth Games the years prior. You know, so uh, she she was she was a good runner. So she, she was sort of favourite to win. I'll full disclosure as well. I was walking the dog this morning and I was listening to a podcast. That's my lazy research. I'm I'm not like JB. 
And I was listening to a podcast of you speaking about your Commonwealth in 86. And I was actually welling up. I remember it live. Mm. I just thought it was so amazing being Scottish. It was it's just a highlight. It was. It was amazing. Like, you know, when, when I qualified for the Commonwealth Games, I thought to myself, you know, we've been just in Edinburgh just down the road. I thought, oh, I'm not getting nervous and I won't I won't feel like it championship and then there was loads of loads of problem you know about funding and everything remember the Rupert Murdoch or something he, he, I don't know what happened but the, the funding wasn't there and it was will it go ahead will it not go ahead and at the last stage you know they got a sponsor and it all went ahead and it was all great but I remember being there thinking you know what I'm not going to I'm, I'm, I'm going to feel like this is first championship and I'm kind of missing out because I'm not traveling to another country to do it you know and I thought oh you know it, it wouldn't be the same experience and when I was driving down we were staying in the halls of residence you know at the university yeah yeah so when I was driving down, I thought to myself, oh, you know, got to stay here. And, and I just, I just, there was just something didn't feel, you know, like excitable about it. And then I remember when we were all told that we had to put our kit on and we, we were doing, everyone in the team was told that we had to go to the opening ceremony. We us being the host nation, we were on last. And so you, you were just all standing and the teams are going in and whatever. And then all of a sudden, and, and you know, I always remember it, it was like um, it was like someone just switched a switch on. All of a sudden the bagpipes started playing and then we started to march in. And it was like every hair on your your, your boy just stood up. It was like chilling, you know. And, and I remember thinking, oh my God, like what, what's the head, you know? And it was actually quite scary because it kind of went from, oh, you know, I'm not really bothered about this to all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is serious, this is big. And, you know, and, and the atmosphere as we went in and, you know, we were all marching. It was one of the best experiences that I'd ever sort of uh, experienced. And then when we went back to the, the halls of residence, you know, the, I don't know if you see the halls of residence, it's all quite a small place. It's quite a small knit place. And, you know, every day all the athletes go down, we have a team meeting and discuss people that are uh, results of, you know, where the medal uh, table is and all this sort of stuff and how we're getting to the track and all this sort of thing. And, um, you know, as the week went on, I, I was the very, very last of the week. So, you know, I'm just sitting waiting and waiting and waiting. And then it was really difficult because one by one, everybody was coming back and they weren't performing well. The mood was like really high. And then all of a sudden you can just feel the mood dropping. And it, it was getting to be quite a negative sort of like vibe. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, geez, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really enjoying this. So I used to just take myself out and go down to the meadows and sit, you know, just on my own for a couple of hours, just so that I wasn't in, you know, the eight, the, the room where there was yeah. a lot of negativity coming in and All whatever. The negative vibes. Yeah. And then on the day that I was running, like Tom McKean run, and he didn't run very well. And then Yvonne, Yvonne Murray was our last opportunity, was the second to last to me, to, and she was supposed to, you know, get the gold. Nice and she was Yvonne messed up as well. Like, you know, Yvonne went too early and she got caught and she ended up with the bronze. And and I remember the, the team manager, Hilary Everett, she was sitting there and she says, oh, well, Liz, you're our last hope. And, you know, it was just like the world of doom just came upon me. And I was just like... Did you feel a massive weight of expectation then? It was horrible. Like, and, I was, and, you know, I was sitting there about an hour before I left to go to the stadium and you were hearing things like, and they were saying, oh, Yvonne's coming back, Yvonne's coming back. So I actually left, like, really early so that I didn't need to see Yvonne because, you know, again, you know, I didn't want to sort of say, oh, hard lines and stuff. You know, I just wanted to focus on me and keep in the sort of frame of mind, you know, I'm going to win and this is yeah. what I'm going to do. And uh, it was just like, you know, it was like the walk of death, it was like a long walk of death, you know, going in and just thinking, oh, this is the last opportunity. But um, to be honest, like, you know, I, I trained really, really hard and I was I was super confident that no matter what was flung at me, I was going to win it that day. And 
my mum and dad, who never, ever, ever come to any of my races, they were there with my uncles and stuff. I just remember thinking, you know, like, I'm going to do this. And there was nothing, nothing in my mind that would convince me other than I was going to win this. As the race went, you know, I, I was just so comfortable. You know, I was actually biting at the bit. I need to go, I need to go, because it was I was like, felt was tripping myself up because I was going that slow. And then, <laughs> I know. And then I eventually um I eventually thought, no, nah, I'm ready, I'm going. And then when I went, it, it was just amazing. You know, you just heard everybody in the stadium because you know it was the last opportunity and they'd waited all week for it. And like it was just electrifying. Like every step you heard them and it just lifted and lifted and lifted, and it was just amazing. And my 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 greatest memory of it though was underneath Medibank Stadium. There's there's an underground uh, tunnel that leads up onto the track, and like obviously with me being winning, you know there was a lot of you know the the medal ceremony was delayed because of the interviews and all this sort of stuff. I remember like for ages I was standing underneath this tunnel waiting and waiting and waiting to come up to get my medal, and I thought to myself. Everybody left, pouring in the rain and whatever. They'll not have waited for the medal ceremony. And then as I was just sitting in there, all you heard was people shouting my name. And it was just mind-blowing because, you know, you're a wee girl from Whitfield that's never done anything in your life. And then all of a sudden, in one moment in time, you know, there's uh, thousands of people standing shouting your name and calling on you. So it was an, a, a fantastic experience and probably the only time in my whole athletic career that I experienced that. Geez, I'm welling up again. This is like Archie. This is like Archie Gemmel '78. I was very fortunate. What's that like when you go back to the halls of residence? Then you've won the only medal, well, the only gold medal that the athletics squad have won. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's you know, I suppose I'm just a bit like removed from it now. Eh? Like you know, memories are always there. You can never take mm. memories away. But one of the one of the, the the sort of funny memories was like obviously after the race I couldn't sleep and so I got up about five o'clock in the morning. Now went out for a run and I was running around Arthur Seat on my own. And to me, I'd just run a race. There was a guy in a black cab and he was rolling his windows down. And he was like tooting his horn. He's going, "Well done, Lizzie." And I never get called Lizzie. Just, mm. Well done, Lizzie. You gold, the gold. And it was a realization of like, geez, you know, people have actually like I really thrilled for this win, you know, and, and, you know, when I went home, there was press trucks outside my house and, that, and I'm like, why are these people here? I just couldn't understand, you know, why all of a sudden people are wanting interviews and whatever. And I remember getting interviewed by Des Lyman and, and he was like thrown a, you know, I'd, I'd had no, by the way, no PR training whatsoever. And he's threw a mic in my, my, my mouth and he was like, oh, you've done it for Scotland. And, and I'm like, what do I say? <laughs> you know, it's, you know, you've no training, no nothing. You've just been thrown into the, the the lion's den. And it was really, really difficult, you know, to sort of deal with all the emotions of it because to me, all I did was win a race, you know? Yeah. And, but it, it was life-changing. It really wasn't. And I know a lot of people say the Commonwealth Games don't matter and that they're a lesser championship win, but for a lot of people, it is the biggest stepping stone to their sport that they'll maybe, you know, they'll maybe never win a medal again at a championship. But for me, it was really, really important. And it was a, you know, a big catalyst for what I did in my career because it made me want more and it made me believe that I could be a champion. And you became the golden girl of Scottish athletics from then on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does winning that automatically qualify you for the Olympics or did you have to then go through the qualification process? Well, 
every year you've, everybody's got to go through the qualification process first to pass the post if you've got the qualifying time and um, normally what you would try to do is get the qualifying time before the trial so the pressure's off and you just need to finish in the top two but everybody has to qualify for the olympics you don't get um you know it's not a you know from a championship just because i won before i'll get in again you know you've got no free pass no yeah, I agree with that, though. You know, people train hard and, you know, some, some days they have a blinder and, you know, they run the race of their life. And um, I think that everybody has the deserves the opportunity to qualify. It doesn't matter who you are or what you are, you know. doesn't matter how great you are. You know, you should be on the line as well. And if you need to qualify, it's the same for everybody, yeah. And did it change the funding that you got at all to help you train for going towards the Olympics? Yeah. Or? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, um, when I when I won the Commonwealth Games, um, you know, I, I got a shoe sponsor, which was massive. And then you got like little companies coming in, like sponsoring you and things like that. So it does open doors. You know, I, I would be writing articles for the newspaper and getting paid a couple of bob for it, you know, things like that. So, you know, my running then became like before, the only way that I had an opportunity of earning money was by winning road races. So, you know, when I was in the States, I used to run the odd couple of road races so that I can get my flights back and things like that because I didn't have a sponsor. Um, so, you know, when you start winning races like that there, yeah, you'll get, you know, you'll get a shoe sponsor and life becomes a little bit more, you, you become more like, well, this is my job now. Yeah. And, you know, you get a bit more support for what you do. It's a pity there's not so much support at the grassroots level when you really need it. <laughs> It's true that though, isn't it? It's you know, it's so difficult for people to get that first step on the ladder nowadays. It really, really is. And you know that grassroots is the is where it's at because that's where you make, you know, the sportsman or woman. And um, you know, I, I really think that big companies should actually look at, you know, how they support the grassroots as well as the elite level. Um, and I think that's a bit lacking in sports of today. You know, just having the foresight to say, well, you know what, we can actually um, support a 15 or a 16 year old through us. And, and then when they make it bigger, whatever, then they can maybe reiterate back into a fund or whatever. But um, I think that a little bit more should be done for grassroots because where we are now, especially with COVID and this last couple of years, you've had lack of competition and opportunities. So I think like the younger, more grassroots level is um, struggling at the moment and we're getting a lot of people probably needing to stop a little bit more than normal because of the situations that we're in just now, you know? Just think that uh, maybe not a whole generation, but there, there must be a huge amount of kids that will actually fall through the, the, the gaps here because of that. No, there is. Like, you know, the, there's a natural fall-off rate anyway because of kids when they're 12, 13 can be really, really good, and especially in women as, like, you know, as we mature and develop, you know, the fallout rate for, for women is really, really high. I think it's even worse now because of the, the situation that we've got uh, with COVID and all that sort of thing. So um, as much as you can support that and, uh, you know, I, 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 even in my own like career, the amount of girls that I've seen come that were good, like really good, and never make it. Girls that were probably better than me at a younger age and never made it. It's quite, that's, that's the sort of sad side of the sport. You know, and, and the amount of adults that you hear that said, oh, I used to do this or I used yeah. to do that, you know, they were good at it. You know, they wouldn't maybe, uh, I mean, I know people that won Scottish schools medals. Um, you know, they were they were real, the, the best of their age group and, you know, they never went on to do anything and regret it. So, um, you know, so it is, it's, it's quite a grey area as grassroots sports. And, um, you know, if, if there was proper funding, you'd get better coaching and better opportunities for the, you know, the younger 
age groups to 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 develop and keep in the sport and whatever. Yeah, there's a lot of elements, hard work, you know, effort, but there's also a lot of luck in finance as well, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Just coming back to yourself then, the difference between winning the Commonwealth and then going on to the, the Olympics, was there a different training regime of that? Oh, yeah. yeah. And there's, what was that like then in the build-up to that, the, the Olympics? Yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, um, obviously for the Olympics and whatever, your, you know, your developments, as you get older as well, you, you're just doing more and more or less, you know. Um, I was self-coached. Like, unfortunately for me, when I went to the States, my coach, Harry, died just before my 18th birthday. So, you know, he was very instrumental in coaching me right up until I was 18. And then I self-coached. When I won the Commonwealth Games, I had a, a bit of a balance with a, a coach called John Anderson, but it didn't last very long. But he coached me for eight months and and he was coaching me through to the 88 Olympics. But I'm quite a long uh, you know, I'm a natural endurance runner. Um, if you see any of my races, you know I'm not the quickest. I haven't got that. I haven't got that ability to go from like um, a steady, a fast, steady pace run into a sprint because I haven't got the the leg turnover to run something like a 56 400 at the end of the race. But yeah, my the, one the time, kick they call it, isn't it? Yeah, kick. But the kick, the kick that I've got is that I can kick from like a thousand meters out at a faster pace, and not a lot of people can stay with that. So you know, my talent was my endurance and my strength and to be you know strong enough to maintain such a fast pace that people would struggle to stay with that and you know there's different you know there's different elements that and, and different strengths and weaknesses that people have uh personally so when I went with John Anderson he tried to create this speed in me and kind of ignored the longer element of my of my sort of running game and when I when I ran the Olympics I felt that um Although, although, you know, and it's a, it's a thing to say, like, although I was second, I felt that my strength let me down. Right. You know, I, I was, I was, I wasn't running as strong as what I, what I could have. And uh, so, you know, I was just a sitting duck, you know, I, I was, I was running at a pace where she just sat and sat and sat and sprinted past me. But, you know, you're in an era where there were drug use and things like that. So, you know, whether I would have beaten her or what is another story altogether. But, um, you know, so I felt really quite, disillusioned after eight to eight and that you know I decided that for me it was best for me to go back to the training that worked for me there's the stuff that I used to do prior to the Commonwealth Games um so I partnered company with John and I then went back to self-coaching and I self-coached myself right through. Now you just touched on drugs there with the the Russian lassie do you firmly believe she was on drugs I think there's it's never been proven is it? Uh, well, there was all that whistleblower thing and that, and yeah. you know, is it that error? And um, you know, like at the end of the day, my 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 look on it is, it's not like she chose to do it, you know, because like she was in she was in the army, she was uh, in the military of the Russian army. Well, that was her title. This is all, uh, yeah, all the Bondarenko, and you know, back in those days, like what we're led to believe is people just used to knock on the doors, plastic cups, there's your vitamins, and they took them. You know, they, it wasn't the fact that they even knew what they were taking. And there's a lot of documented evidence to say that's the case. So, you know, in my mind, I think that, you know, it was systematic. It wasn't yeah. like, you know, it's not like like today where people are actually choosing to cheat. Um, back in that day, they didn't actually sort of choose to do it. They were systematically doped from their, their, their government. So I think that, you know, although it's, it doesn't make it right, um, in my head, it's it's not as bad as girls that are doing it today. And there's a very uh, slim chance that she's going to be found guilty, is there? Because there's no like, no, there's no, no past tests or anything like that to recheck or. 
Uh, all the records are are completely not going back that far. And it's not just me, you know, Yvonne Murray was a bronze medalist and Yvonne's exactly the same, you know, probably in that race, Yvonne was a gold medalist. Yeah. You know, what do you do? You know, and that's the reality that you, that you have to live with. I mean, I think there was a girl called Christy Wade who was a Welsh 800 metre runner. And to me, I think she was the cleanest, she was the clean athlete of that era. And she ran 157. And, you know, she never won a thing. You know what I mean? Commonwealth Games is what she won, but going on uh, Olympics and things. And I, I personally feel that, you know, in those races, you know, she was against like Cratch Clover and things like you mean. Was that the days of that Czechoslovakian girl that looked like a bloke? That's the one. Yeah, that was, <laughs> so, ins- that was yeah. insane. So, um, so you know, you, you can sit there and write a book about girls that were probably clean winners, but, you know, you can't do nothing about it. Um, but again, it, it was the era that we were in and we all knew it, but, um, you know, we chose to compete and do our best. So you knew it when you lined up against her. You knew yeah, that yeah, she yeah. was... Yeah, she yeah. wasn't everybody, legit. Yeah. yeah, everybody, everybody knew that you know what was going on, but you couldn't do anything about it. If you, you know, you wouldn't race if you know if you wouldn't you wouldn't turn on the start line if you didn't you know if you didn't believe that you, you could still beat them. I mean, I still believed I could beat them, but <laughs> you know that was just yeah. that, that's the way it is. But um, it, it was just something that was really quite right back then. You know, everybody goes on about drugs nowadays, but you know it, it was it was well documented back in those days as well people were using drugs and epo and all that sort of stuff you know it's been going on for years and years i mean we'll probably come on a bit more about the 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 drug side of things later on as well because we've got a few questions just in our own minds but we've done we've done the olympics and we're back to the commonwealth again in auckland yeah Uh, yeah another goal different experience different experience altogether because um after the after the eight to eight Olympics, I I was really I was quite disillusioned in that, and I went through I say I went through a little bit of depression about it because you know it kind of got to me thinking like oh you know what 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 do I need to do to win and you know all this sort of stuff so um I decided to retire and decided it was time to start a family so um myself and my husband were trying to sort of start a family in eight to eight and whatever and I don't know like for whatever reason um. You know, I couldn't get pregnant and whatever. I was, I remember like, uh, I was sitting on the sofa one night and a girl that I used to compete against, a girl called Jill Hunter, who was an English 10,000 metre runner, it came up on some sports programme that she was favourite to win in Auckland for the 10,000 metres and a big interview with him. She was saying how her training is going and da da And I remember sitting there and I says to uh, Peter, I says, oh, I-, I could win that. And he says, don't just sit there and say that. If you think you win it, why are you going to try and win it then? So I actually literally... The next day says, okay, I'm, I'm going to go and, and train for this. So I took myself off to Canberra for about 12 weeks and I ran the Commonwealth Games in New Zealand. I was, I was a bit overweight. I wasn't in the best shape possible, but I was very, very lucky that the race went to my favour. It was quite a slow run race. And then Jill tried to take it off and she had a gap on us about 80 to 100 metres and I just let her go and I just wind her down, wind her down then eventually you know, she just went off too fast for her own good and um, I caught up on her and I actually won it so I actually went to my favour really and also got a bronze medal in the 3000 metres that year so I was lucky though because I wasn't in the best shape you know I, I, I was uh, you know I was uh, I was a bit sort of like you know 12 weeks isn't <laughs> so you just did three months self-coaching just thought I'll just go out and oh, do it so I went over to Canberra and uh, ran the races in Auckland yeah and then when I came back, I was I really sort of got my, my zest back and I was 
ready to go and whatever. But then with being sort of three months away and whatever, I came back. I was, I was training for about four months and uh, I started like having problems with my breathing. I, it was like, I don't know, it was like I had tight chest or something. I couldn't breathe properly. And then I started putting like weight on them, yarns and whatever. And when I went to the doctors, um, <laughs> I discovered I was pregnant and I was four months pregnant and didn't know it. So, <laughs> so that was then, you know, like a sort of, oh, Jeepers, now now when I want to get back and be running, you know, here I am pregnant. So um so yeah, and then that was when Ailish came along. So she was November, wasn't she, that year? November ninety? Yeah. And then how quickly because ninety one was a mental year for you. Yeah, it was like did you start years. training then? After um, I didn't stop training. Like I trained. Um, I mean, a lot of people that were in our booth that time would have <laughs> ventured. It wasn't a pretty sight running past, but um, <laughs> I trained all through my pregnancy. Um, you know, kept running and whatever. Uh, I wasn't doing crazy stuff. I wasn't putting spikes on and going down the running track. I was just, you know, running comfortable and nice and easy and listening to my body and things. But I did run all the time. And then as soon as I had Ailish, I, I was just right back into it. Like literally the next day, I was out and it wasn't the mo- it wasn't the most successful, but, you know, I, I ran a mile and then I ran two miles and I just got myself going because um, I had stitches and things like that. So it was, a you know, a bit painful and whatever. But um, I got back really quickly and then um, we went to the States about five weeks after we had Ailish because I wanted to get some warm weather training done. And um, I ran my first race um, six and a half weeks after I had her. And I won a 5K in Gainesville, Florida, against some really top Russians, which I was really surprised at. And um, the, the worst moment of that, though, was, uh, you know, when you're pregnant and whatever, and you have a baby, obviously you wouldn't realise this, but, you know, you're, you're very big. And then when you have a baby, you feel like, oh, I've got my body back. And you think, like, you know, because you, you don't see the boobs and the belly anymore that, you know, you're, you're, you're back in. But I got the shock of my life when I was on the front page of the Gainesville Gazette. And then I seen that, you know, the boobs weren't back and the belly was still a bit uh, not trim. And it, it was shocking. <laughs> so, um, so I then realized, Ooh, I've got a lot of work to do. So um, I, I, I based myself in Gainesville and then 12 weeks after I had her, I got a bronze medal at the world cross country. And then nine months after I had her, uh, I won the world title. So you were living in Arbroath at this point, yeah? Yeah, we were in Arbroath at Woodfield. Well, I'm confused you moved because of the weather. That's really weird. <laughs> I couldn't get past running with all those soldiers with their logs. I used to, used to run past my mum and dad's house, man. What a really? speed. It was mental. Uh, we used to say, there's Liz again. It was just like a rocket. Now, our growth was good for running, like, you know, because I used to go up by Redford and that, like, some good country roads and stuff, you know, for running on. Yeah. A lot of hills. It's good. I, and, I, you know, I had some good terrain in that to run on in our growth. And, like, wherever I've stayed about, it's always been good for running, even Canusty and that, like. Was that, and I think it was 91 anyway, that you set the, the Scottish 10K track record? Yeah, um, in 91, I set a lot of records. Um, I set the world best for uh, a debut marathon which yeah. um, you know after the world championships new york marathon was getting held and the director of the new york marathon fred lebeau called me and he said um oh liz you know we had a we had a press conference um to about the new york marathon and we had the two best marathon runners in the world was rosamota and lisa and Daniki. they were both racing the the new york marathon that november and um, they were asked a question at the press conference. So a young Scottish girl has just won the world title 10K. Do you ever think she'll run a marathon? And they both turned around and said, no, that um, I wouldn't be a good marathon runner because I waste too much energy. I've got too much bounce because I'm a track runner. 
So he said to me, do you want to prove them wrong? And I was like, yeah, okay then. <laughs> so um, I actually went into the marathon by default. So I only had about eight weeks training for to do New York marathon. And I went and ran New York marathon, first marathon ever. My longest run before the marathon was 12 miles. I, I kind of kept my 10K training, did a couple of extra miles. So instead of doing six by mile, I did 10 by mile. I did sort of two sessions of that. And then I did like two 19 mile runs or something. And then that was me. And I went and ran the marathon and won it. Well, so hold I, on, hold on. So you never run 26 miles before you did the New York um, marathon? No, 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 no. <laughs> I've never ran 26, I've only ever run over 26 miles once in my life and I did it for a reason, but um, I'd never, I've never, all my marathon training only gets, goes up to about 19 miles. I never do over distance on it. It's where a lot of people go wrong. They do far too much over distance and then they go to the marathon tired. They've already had the race because <laughs> they did too was, much. That was but, the fastest um, debut run ever, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a world record, fastest debut ever. But um, in 91, I had the world record for the 10K on the road, 8K on the road, 5K on the road. I had the world record for 5K indoors. Um, I had the world half marathon world record. So I'd set quite a few world records. And they, they stood for about 12 years, which I was really proud of, because you know, for 12 years, no girls had ran faster than me. It's a bit of a bummer now because of all the technology, everything's gone. We'll, we'll, we'll come <laughs> on to technology, but just to... Just to put those records in, in context, your Scottish record 30 years on, you know, hmm. it still stands now, does it not? It's still the fastest time. I think the I, 10 key is. I think I Steph broke the marathon. Steph 12 broke the marathon. I think only by five seconds. Yeah, it was only five the, seconds of a difference in 30 years with all the technology. I think that's amazing. Uh, well, hopefully Elis will rewrite it. <laughs> well, again, we'll call it Elise, but just, just on Tokyo then, because... Again, where did you train for that? Because obviously the humidity there, the heat there, that's not, you know. Um, what I did was uh, winter time, I went to Florida. So I trained in Gainesville, Florida. And then I came back in February and most of my training was done in the, like in Woodfield, I had a, a jacuzzi and a steam room and mm. I put a treadmill in there. And most of my training was done in that steam room. Jacuzzi. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. How many treadmills did you go through? Because it's not really a good environment uh, for that, them. That treadmill, that treadmill was like a relic. I, I wish I'd known what happened to it because um, it was a power jog one and it was it was super zooped up because seemingly like you weren't allowed it for to go faster in a set time, but the guy had set it really fast for me so that I could do other stuff on it. It's jacked, <laughs> it up, the, jacked up the running machine. Power jog. <laughs> so if you go on Amazon to buy a running machine, none of them are suitable. No, well, well, now they would be, but back then they were, were too slow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, so it was a really humid room, so, you know, it, it worked a treat, really. It was like a little glass house, really. Now, out in Tokyo, I'll sort of work back the way, but when Brendan Foster was commentating on your race, he actually said it's the greatest performance by a British athlete he'd seen at, at that moment in time. Yeah. From your point of view... Just talk us through that race. Um, well, it, that race started in 88 because, like, um, you know, as I said, like, I kind of went through a little bit of a, an issue and, and, you know, disbelief of, like, you know, will you ever win or whatever. And then when I sort of stopped feeling sorry for myself and, um, you know, got back into the game, I quickly realised that, you know, when I started running, I used to think that when you, you know, for me to win a, a, a major championship, I'd need to be in, like, sort of, 31 minute shape, 30, 30 to 31 minutes would get you, you know, a medal. 
you know, after 88 and that, I just thought, you know, that's not going to be good enough. You know, I need to be sub 30 shape if I'm going to win a medal. Um, so I kind of restructured everything in my training to be in sub 30 shape. So like when I went to Tokyo, I knew, you know, I knew I was in that shape. And I I was, you know, I, I never go into a race with any one plan. So I had several plans on what to do. Um, my initial plan in the way I, I trained for two years was I was going to start a fast pace and then I was going to put a surge, you know, a really, really quick 1K. So from 4K to 5K, I was going to put a burst on and then I was going to settle back in. And then at 7K, I was going to do the same. And then at 9K, I was running for home. That, that was my plan. Unfortunately, like fortunately for me, the pace that I set, like when I run, I listen to people around me and you can hear when they're breathing and when they're, you know, what the sort of state of fitness is, you, could, you sort of judge it. And when I started, I became very aware very quickly that people were struggling. So I knew that I didn't need to. Struggling, with, struggling with the conditions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very early on, you could hear people. Their breathing was 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 uh, tense. You know, you could hear them, and I was still very controlled. So I kind of knew very early on that you know game plan changes, and you know you think on your feet when you run, and and so yeah. So I changed what I needed to do. I knew that from the way the race was developing, if I could just keep this pace, it's going to be a struggle for someone. And then if anybody's with me, we have to go. I'll just go. Diara Tulu tried to go into the lead, but she tried to slow it. And I was very aware that she tried to slow it. So I just went right past her. I think she led for like 20 meters. And I was like, no, you're not getting to do it. And I went by again. <laughs> so I, I was in really, I was in sub 30 shape there. Um, if I had to run quicker that day, I would have. Um, it was just really, really harsh conditions. It's the first time I've ever seen on a track where they put water on the track so people could drink and put sponges on them. It was so hot. They, they also, the, the other thing was too, it was the first time we'd run on Mondo, which is like really, really hard. So people were saying they were getting cramp in their calves and things like this. So, um, yeah, so it was quite a, a difficult race. But for me, you know, I, I, I was fortunate enough to be in really, like probably the best shape I'd ever been in my life. And I executed a race that worked for me. And, you know, and I came away with the world title. And the steam room was a masterstroke. <laughs> is there a point in that race then if you can hear these people panting and, and things that you go I've got this yeah 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 I think you know a lot of athletes will say that they, you know they listen to what's going on around them and you know when you start hearing people you know struggling that you know gives you a confidence to push it on and you know you might push it on when you, you know they're that you start to fall off so that I mean, that's part and parcel of racing, isn't it? You learn how to judge people and, you know, shuffle how you're going to race it. So I was very much, you know, I've always been quite a much a racer of, I'm not a lover of the sit and kick. Nowadays, I get bored with that. I'm bored watching on the telly, you know, everybody thinks they're a sprinter. And so, you know, and they know, they know fine well, they've got a girl that will run like a 55, 56 last lap and they, they, their PB is only 62 and yet they still sit behind them. You know, you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, yeah. So I wasn't from that era. I was from an era where, like, you know, I didn't see the point in going in and racing and racing hard to try and get a personal best because I could have just stayed at home and trained, you know, which would have been harder than some of the races. So so that's why, like, a lot of people used to say, oh, you know, she's a one-race wonder, you know, she has to go to the front and whatever. But it was just the fact that, you know, we didn't have pacemakers back then. And it was like, why waste my time sitting in and just getting kicked by someone that's yeah. just got a quicker last 200 than me? So that, that was my sort of attitude on it. You could have done a Steve Overt wave at the 6K mark or something, yeah? 
Oh, well, you know, a lot of the races that I had to do were under distance, eh? so, you know, and a lot of people didn't know this, but because I was training for the 10K, I would go and do a session in the morning and then go and race a 1500 internationally at night. <laughs> you know, because I was a 10K runner and, and you know, there weren't, there weren't any 10K races on the track for women there. So, you know, you probably get one qualifying race, uh, which would be, you know, just on your own anyway. And then, you know, you're expected to run against the best girls in the world. So a lot of the races, I, I sort of knew that I was only going to get second or third because I'd already did a session, to, you know, in the mornings. It was just used as part of training and things like that, you know. One of the best things about that 10K must have been the fact that these drugged up Russians must have been back in the dressing room just wondering what the fuck had gone on. <laughs> no, I think it was just such harsh conditions, Zane. Everybody was struggling, you know. Um, it was just one of those, I don't know, it was just one of those nights where I was on song and it's good when everything goes right your way and, you know, you're just floating away. No better feeling than when you, you, you nail a race and, you know, a performance. So um, it was just one of those, probably one of the better performances I did in my life, really, to be honest. Yeah, the drugs don't work, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was outstanding. But to go from doing 10K, which is about six miles, yeah. to... A couple of months later, 26 miles and let's say the fastest debut. That, that's the bit yeah. that I find staggering that I always think if you're training for a, a certain distance, that must, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're geared up for exactly that to use every ounce of energy you've got on yeah. 10K to then within eight weeks to be able to nail it on 26 miles is, yeah. is, is something special, isn't it? Well, to be honest, like as a 10K runner, I was always a high miles person. Although I didn't do great big long runs, you know, I trained sometimes twice, three times a day running. So um, I'd be running like uh, for my track season, I'd probably run anywhere between 95 miles a week being a recovery week and 110 being a high, high volume week, averaging mostly around about 105 per week. So, you know, it's not like, you know, I'm not, accumulating miles because you know I, I did a lot of road running and things so and for me I always knew that the marathon was my event you know that I would be moving up there so you know I, although although um you know I didn't do lots of long runners runs and I, I kind of went into that marathon not best prepared you know there, there were miles in the legs and you know and to be honest like it was so much slower than what I was training at you know for 10k you know I, I was training at 30 minute 10k pace to suddenly go to 220 26 27 is a lot slower cadence so you know it felt like you were just trotting along in the park you know it was a nice easy run see if those girls <laughs> hadn't said what they said in the interview about you know although no you wouldn't be able to manage that would you have gone into that marathon oh, never never no but it goes back to what i said like you know all my life i've got people saying that i'll not i'll, I'll not be able to do this or you can't do that or even at school, you know, your brains are in your feet. And I've never, you know, I've never had, you know, people that all, I don't know what it was. You know, I've always had to feel that um, I have to prove myself better than anybody else. And it's happened all, all through my life, to be honest. So we've got the New York Marathon, because I just want to finish off 1991, because it didn't just finish there. We've got the New York Marathon. Mm-hmm. But then you've got Sports Personality of the Year. Yeah, that was a funny one. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know you're winning that on the night or? No, no, honestly, honestly, you don't know that you win that. And a lot of people say, oh, it's fixed, but you don't know that you win it. Like Desmond Lyon called me up and he said, you know, I think they thought he was great mates with me. Uh, I got invited down to the Sports Personality Year and I refused it because I was in heavy training because um, I had a race coming up and I said, no, unfortunately, I can't 
you know, I had all as well. And I says, I can't, Taylor, um, sorry, and um, I can't sort of, you know, come down because I'm in heavy training and da-da-da. And then I got a phone call from Des Lyman saying, look, you need to come down. He says, you know, you've been the, the top sports person this year. And he says, I don't know how the voting's going, but he says, you're going to be up there. He says, you know, you have to come down. And I says, no, I'm not coming. I'm not coming. And then I get another phone call back and he says, look, we've looked at the phone, we've looked at the votes, and the way this, this voting goes, you're definitely in top four. He says, you know, it'd be embarrassing if you win it and you're not there. And I'm like, no, I'm not coming. <laughs> so I put the phone oh. down again. And then I get a chaff on the door and this guy comes up to me and he says, <laughs> and this is the truth. He says, I've been told I've got no job tomorrow if you don't come with me to London. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what? And he says, yeah, he says, um, the voting's going crazy and you're looking like, you know, they say they don't know if you're going to win it. He says, but you're definitely in the running. And he says, um, they don't want you not to be there if you win it. And says, can you please come down and sort of make my life easier? So I ended up getting down on a, a Royal Royal Mail plane from Dundee. There was a two-seater or whatever with all the mail in the back. So you and were living up, in Carnoustie at this point, or Arbroath at this point? Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and um, we went down, we went down to London, and I was sitting there thinking, "Geez, this is a waste of time." Like you know, like fair enough. I might, I might, if I'm lucky, I'll get in the top three because they'd already said, you know, you're definitely in top four and whatever. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought of anything or whatever. And then third goes up, and I was like, "Oh well." Second goes up, and I'm like, "Well, that's a definite. What a waste of time or whatever." And <laughs> he said, "I won it," and I was just gobsmacked. And I hadn't had a speech or anything. And I was just sitting there going, what do I say? Who did you beat? Who was two and three? Can you remember? Um, who was it? I hope it was Beckham. Was it, was it, um, was it the rugby guy? Um, well, was it Will Carling? And oh, Will Carling. I thought maybe Will, Will Carling. And then was it Sir Redgraves? Something oh, right, like Eve. Oh, brilliant. Your outfit, if that was just... <laughs> A, a boy turning up at your door. Did you have a dress and everything? You know, I'll just grab that, or did oh, you I just, buy I something? This, I had this sort of dress that I wore before, and I just like and and to be honest, I like, no hair done enough. I just it's <laughs> 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 like oh well, and I, I was just gobsmacked when I, I went up. But do you know what? It was it was a big honour, like you know, because to me, I didn't think that a lot of people actually. You know, you always think football or motor racing, or you know, you always think other sports are more popular than your own. You know, and I, I, you know, and being a female as well, you always like Limford Christie was running at that time and things. So you always think of, you know, well, there'd be more into the males than the females. So you know, it really, it really did. You know, I was totally shocked when I won it. I had no idea. Absolutely fantastic! You were the only female to win it that decade, actually. Yeah, and I was the only female. I was the only. I'm the only winner that's never went to the VIP VIP party. <laughs> <laughs> and where did you go? I went home because I had like a run to do in the morning. <laughs> oh dear. So going back up the road, a month later, you're getting yeah. told to go to the Caird Hall. Oh, that was another shocker, wasn't it? Michael Aspel turns up with a red book. That was ridiculous though, wasn't it? I mean that 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 just that just like blew me away. I was just like I'm not even, I'm, I'm finished my career or what? <laughs> it's like I'm so young. I'm a, you know, I'm only I was only like, you know, I'm a, like sort of 30s, I'm like, how can it be that this is your life? Uh, <laughs> that was like end? Stephen Hendry got hits when he was like 25 or something. Yeah, do, do you know something <laughs> that I don't know or what? 
it's like, but again, great night. Like, and again, I don't know how my family kept that from me. Cause I remember what, I remember, um, Peter said, well, we're going out for dinner. And I'm like, no, I'm not going. And he says, well, I've arranged for your mum to babysit. No, I'm not going. And I'm, I'm very sort of dogmatic in that way. Like, you know, if I don't do so, you know, if I'm running, I'm running. And I'm like, no, no, I've got to run to do more. And he's like, just go and get dressed. And you know what, I, dressed, I had this most stupidest outfit he would ever believe. Because I just thought we were going to the button bend up in our broth, eh? <laughs> so uh, I go, I go and get dressed up. Whatever. Mum's like, oh yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, dressed yeah. up for the button yeah. bend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you did back then. <laughs> it was a classy. <laughs> it was as classy as what we got. Eh? Going out for date nights, whatever. So we went uh, into the kid hall, and I'm like, well, I'm going to the kid hall, whatever. And then I saw my uncle Philip, and I thought, what's he doing sitting there, like you know, he's sitting in a chair. And I saw my auntie Claire, and I'm like what is going on here? And then he started playing bagpipes and marching down and then I see this red book and I'm like, get away, like, it's just <laughs> happening. <laughs> it's just, Thank couldn't you. believe it. It was so funny. It was ridiculous. But again, looking back on it, it's a it's a nice honour. No, that's a huge honour, that as well. Yeah. You've got some injuries, but we've still got the Barcelona Olympics because yeah. you represented Britain at three, three different Olympics, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Barcelona is a bit different because, like, um, obviously, like, you know, I was self-coaching, whatever, so I didn't have an awful lot of, like, you know, medical support and science support. So, you know, I used to take vitamins and I used to do all my gym work and all that sort of stuff. But um, when when I was training prior to going to Barcelona, there was just something not right. At one stage, I thought, oh, I must be pregnant again because my breathing and everything was, like, really, really bad. And I wasn't. And so I just kept training on whatever, but just something wasn't clicking. And then when I went to Barcelona, actually in the race, and it was the first time it ever happened to me, I actually took, um, I thought I was having a heart attack. My chest and everything just went out of control and I couldn't breathe. And I went from leading to like just falling all the way back. And then I kind of, kind of sort of worked my way through it and kind of was trying to get back into it. Anyway, ended up fifth or whatever, and there was just something wrong. I, I just couldn't get any air. And then um, I went to see a specialist in uh, in hospital and um, they put a camera down into my chest. And what they, what they um, said was, because I'd run behind heavy traffic a lot, you know, like as a kid up in Whitfield and something, I was running behind buses and all this sort of stuff, I damaged all my bronchial tubes, so it was like asthma. So, um, and, and you know, I couldn't recover it. He says they're damaged. Um, you know, you need to get on inhalers and things like that. So I kind of discovered that asthmatic. And so I then had to sort of get into inhalers and uh, things like that. So, um, so yeah, so that kind of, you know, that kind of sort of ruined that whole Olympics. And then, you know, obviously because I got control and better control of the, the breathing and the, the chest problems, um, you know, I, I was able to get sort of back into my training and whatever. And is that what took you back to Tokyo then? Because that was your next marathon. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, um, by then too, I was sponsored from ASICS and ASICS was my, uh, it was ASICS Japan that were my sponsors, not ASICS Europe or UK. So um, all, all my shoe fittings and everything were all done in Japan. So I used to get specialised shoes made for me to fit my feet. So I used to go over every so often. Um, so in Japan, I had a really good reputation. You know, like I won Tokyo. Um, Japan's really up on their endurance runners. So, you know, I was kind of well known there with the branding and things. So I, I did the Japan half marathon. That was where I set the world record for the half marathon. And then so I decided to do the 
Japan marathon. I won that once and was second once as well and third once. So I did it three times. But um, so that was my connection with Japan. Now, did you not have a serious injury in 97 or something? Because I found out that today, I think. Yeah, when I was in Japan doing the marathon, there was an open manhole. And the way I the way I run, I kind of just look two feet in front of me. I don't really look up the road. You know, I, I kind of keep my head down. I keep my focus. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my stride and listening to my stride and whatever. That's how I run a focus. I sort of got to this open manhole too late and I just seen it at the last minute. So I had to sort of jump and veer over it. And as I jumped and veered over it, I tore the top of my hamstring. And you had to stop? No, I finished the rest of the race. I was on a really, really quick time. I was absolutely flying. How much more did you have to do? Um, that was about, must have been about the 19-mile mark or something like that. So I had a good a good sort of six, seven mile to go. And, you know, at the start, it was okay. You know, it was With just, a torn armstring? Yeah, it was a bit painful. And then it just got tighter and tighter and tighter. If you see the end of the race, you could actually see I'm really struggling to sort of lift the leg and, you know, I'm grimacing and that. Like, But I managed to finish it. Yeah. I've ran with a broken kneecap before, so it's <laughs> like... Turn it off. You watch the football and you see them pull up. You know, <laughs> they, they kind of go five meters. I'll just do another six miles. I've got, I've got quite a good mental turn off switch. When did you run my broken kneecap then? Oh, when I was, um, when I was about seventeen, about sixteen or seventeen, I was training with the lads um, at Dundee Hockle Harriers, and I don't know if you've been at Care Park, but as you come from our old club, yeah. there's like a road in the middle of Care Park that you come down, and then you go into where. Um, I think there's like you go into the road where Fintry's up and whatever. So we used to come out of that middle road and then go up uh, into Stobeswell and things like that. So sort of there, so um, there's a big line of trees, and the council decided to cut them down, and so they were like tree stumps rather than trees. They cut them down, so it was like stumps about knee knee height, and it was pitch black, and I didn't know that they'd cut them down. So obviously, you're looking at the way that you normally would go out, and um, I went and ran into one of those, and then I fell on top of it on my knee. And then I went and ran the session. It was like really sore and painful. So I had a couple of days off. And then I was actually running my, I was actually running the Schools International that Saturday. So I traveled down and my knee was really sore. So I got, you know, one of those ice spray things, you know, cans, ice in a can. Magic spray. Yeah, I sprayed it all over my knee and I went and ran the race and I ran, I actually ran all right. I actually finished 10th or something in this international. So it was like Scotland, England, Wales and all schools, yeah. British schools it was in Colchester. And um, I actually ran the race and finished 10th, which was really good for me. And uh, coming up on, on the, coming back up, I, I was in so much pain that I couldn't lift, I couldn't bend or straighten the knee. It was just like locked. So when I came off, I had to go to ER and I got an X-ray and I broke the patella. So I was out for, <laughs> out for about eight weeks. You did all that in a broken kneecap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this injury, I was on about 97. Did you, have you lost a toe or something? Yeah, what happened was, um, so I had arthritis in my feet. I was advised to go and get my toe pinned and six weeks later, you'd be back running. That was after 97, after I finished shaking in London. So because I ran so long with the arthritis, I'd created an ulcer in the bone. So the bone was actually rotted from your big toe joint up. So they went and tried and pinned it. So that didn't work. And so what they did was they gave me an artificial toe joint. That kind of worked. But then about, I think it was about three three weeks later, I was like on a grass at Perth and my foot went into a hole, that, like a, a divot, and then I break the ceramic uh, toe joint. 
So I got rushed into A&E again. The operation didn't work. So I lost all the skin on the top part of my foot. So I had to get five skin grafts. I was three months on bed rest. They had to do a bone graft on my... It's not really a big toe anymore. It's more like a stump. Um, fortunately for me, the fifth skin graft worked and the bone graft worked, but I was in a plaster cast for like near enough a year and thing. So it was quite a quite a, a, a tough thing. But that was me finished. That was that was the end of the career. There was no no coming back. That was me. But you can still run recreationally and stuff, yeah? I, I, I can run, but I don't run technically right. I run on the outside of my foot, so I run like a foot curve. So if I do too much, I get stress fractures or fractures of the feet. So I need to be careful in what I do. So that's why, like, you know, I'm quite happy just running five miles a day and that does me. Five miles for you must just seem like a wee stroll down to Tesco's or something. It's just, it's just enough for mentally keep me sound because I'm quite a, a... Running for me is... A, like, um, I think if I didn't run, I'd be quite a depressive person. So for running for me and exercise for me is like a big relief. Eh? So Mental if health. I didn't run, I think I'd be quite a, a sort of, you know, yeah, I think I'd have issues. So um, for me, it's important to keep moving and to keep fit and to keep healthy. Now, you were awarded the MBE in 92. Was yeah. that another one when you went, oh, I'm not coming down? Or did you go down to get that? No, no um, I was also World Athlete of the Year that year. And the Duke was the president of the IOC there. So um, I actually got invited down for the two of them. When I went down, I saw him first. It was me and Chris Akabusi. I was female athlete and he was male athlete of the year. And he awarded us with trophies for being World Athlete of the Year. And then... Um, he said to me, oh, I believe you're going to see my my uh, wife to get your medal. And I was like, yeah, yeah. He says, uh, it's in the other part of the palace. He says, follow me and I'll take you through. And he took me through all the private like little areas in the palace and said, look at that, look at that, look at that. It was really, really nice, actually. So I, I, you know, I have a good memory of um, him being quite fun with me. And then I went and got my MBE that day as well. And what about the Queen? What does she say to you then when she's giving... Because is that the whole thing where they do the little sword on your shoulders and that, is that...? Yeah, I mean, you've got to think there's, like, I don't know how many people behind you, so she doesn't really say much. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough that I've been to dinner with the Queen a couple of times where it's been quite, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. So, um, you know, she's a very, very knowledgeable person as well. You know, she uh, she makes you feel at ease, um, you know, and you can have a very pleasant conversation. You did have some brilliant achievements... You know, you've still got another marathon in you. You've still got another Olympics in you at, at that mm -hmm. stage. At, at what point do you see things in your own mind tailing off when you're just not at the, the peak you were? I mean, I think every athlete has their day. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, that's one thing that I've always been very aware of. You know, um, I knew that one day I'm not going to be able to run, so I need to provide for myself. And, you know, you're not always going to be top dog. It's great on the way up there, but it's not so great on the way down. <laughs> very honest in my ability and what I was capable of doing, but I had about four years where I was the best woman in the world. Nobody could touch me. And then it started tailing off. And within that time, I started moving up to the marathon. And the marathon is a, a really difficult one to gauge right. And you put a lot of effort in. So when it goes wrong, it is quite disheartening because, you know, you don't get a lot, lot of opportunities to do the marathon. You know, if you if you mess up on that one, it's not like you can do one next week. It takes a lot out of your prep. To get it right is really, really important. And um, it was a very, very steep learning curve. A change in my mindset was the Atlanta Olympics. I'd trained probably the best I'd ever done. I'd 
got in con- um, I'd met a lady called Greta Bites, who was one of the leading marathon runners in the world. She, she led went to New York about nine times or something. Yeah, she won at New York. She's set world records in that. And the really weird thing was um, when we met, all of our personal bests are within hundreds of seconds each other. Very, very similar runners, very, very same mindset, very similar backgrounds. Um, and we just completely gelled. It was Jer Hartman that actually met us. Like, he, like when, when I was um, in a treatment one time, he said to me, I've got a lady you want to meet. And me being me is like, no, I don't want to meet anybody. And they're like, oh, it's great about Sam. No, I don't want to meet her. And he said, well, I've got a lady I want you to meet. And she's like, no, I don't want to meet her either. So the two of us didn't want to meet each other. <laughs> so we arranged an appointment where I was coming out and she was going in. <laughs> we had to meet. And when we met, we just like, it was just like, boom, you know, just gelled. Um, everything she believed about running, I believed about running. Um, we started going for runs together and then she became my mentor and then she became my coach. So, uh, you know, it was a great partnership. It was great to have some kind of spirit that, you know, she like everything she'd done was like 10 years ahead of me and I was following suit. So it was great to have some, had that experience, but also the same persona as myself. So anyway, we were training for Atlanta and I was in the best shape possible. And uh, Atlanta, the the village is very noisy and, you know, there's a lot of issues around Atlanta. So Greta said to me, like, best thing you could do is just stay in Gainesville. We'll stay in Gainesville and then just move into the village, like, you know, the day before your race sort of thing. And then, you know, you're not going to get any disrupt sleep. You're just going to get and sleep up and run. I was like, yeah, that sounds good. So we'll do that. So we're training away. We did one of the best sessions ever going into it, a personal best session and everything. Um, going to Atlanta, have a night's sleep. I get up the next day, it's the day before my run. And when I get up, uh, like I put my foot down. I'm like, gosh, I can't put my foot on the ground. You know, it was like getting pain in my heel. I was like, geez, what that? When I looked down at my leg, I had like a little, just a little cut. Like I wouldn't even see a cut, like just a little nick. And then I had like a red line that was going up into my calf. And I was like, what the heck's that like? And then about an hour later, my calf started swelling up and this red line was going further up my leg. And when I went to see the doctor, the doctor says that um, it looks like you've been bitten by something and with the heat and humidity, the, it's just went straight into your bloodstream. So it's poisoning your bloodstream. So I got like, so I was getting like antibiotic injections. I was on antibiotic pills. I had that much antibiotics coming out of me. You could smell the antibiotics on me. I had my leg all strapped up and it was all elevated in the hope that the swelling would go down so that I could race the next day. And then when I got up the next day, the swelling had gone down slightly. The doctors had arrived to inject my foot so that, you know, I didn't get any, I wouldn't feel it. And I just thought to myself, you know, even, even, 80% 80% of my training, if it could kick in, I'll win this because I'm, you know, I was just so confident, I was in such great shape. And um, I started the race and I can't remember anything of the race. Like, I actually thought I didn't finish it. And it wasn't until like a few years later, a guy called Doug Gillen, who used to write for the, the Glasgow Herald, said to me, No, Liz, you were 25th. And I says, I have no memory of finishing that race, none, because I was just so doped up with antibiotics. I had no idea where I was. So when I'd got that result, it kind of changed my whole, it doesn't matter how hard you, you run, there's no guarantees ever. You know, it doesn't matter that you put all this work together. You know, no matter what, if Lady Lux isn't on your side, this happens, you know, shit happens. And it completely changed me mentally. After that, I don't think I was as tough mentally anymore. It kind of like just blew me out of the park. From there on, I was never quite the same athlete than that I was 
Now, the one one thing I was ready to ask you, you were dropped by Nike because you were pregnant. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. That's the, yeah, it's, it's funny to see them all like... Wouldn't happen in this day and age now, would it? Yeah, as soon as I told them I was pregnant, they just dropped me. And so for the nine months, I had no no sponsor, no income or nothing. They just they just assumed that women... To be honest, though, I think that I was the first woman that actually came back to such a high level so quickly. But they had no they had no qualms at all. They just dropped me like a hot potato. So they just thought you just wouldn't be back running. That was it. Yeah, they just ended the contract. Yeah. Yeah. They just says that, you know, that's it. You won't be that's your done. That's your career done. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna run against it. No, that's it done. So yeah, so we we lost the we lost the contract. But in my mind, I had you know never had a problem with um knowing that I was going to get back into it. None at all. But back then there was no guidelines or anything like, you know, I'd go to the doctors and the doctors say, you still running? I'm like, yeah, wow, you still running? Oh my days. You know, when are you going to stop? And I'm like, no, I'm all right. (laughs) It's like, fine. (laughs) So he even, he was amazed. Like there's no book or guideline as to what do you do when you're pregnant? eh? Just listen to your own body basically. Yeah. I did. I've always did that. I've always been really, really good. Um, You know, I've always been really good. Even from a kid, I've always listened to men or, body and what I do and I think a lot of that goes on I think a lot of the way I deal with things goes on from the way that I was brought up you know and, and because I was so um solitude you know the mindset that I've got is probably a bit different from a lot of other people did Nike come back no no that was it you moved on well, to something else because uh, imagine dropping you and then then the 91 year happens uh, <laughs> now, what happened was um, when I was in Tokyo, like when you go to World Championships Olympics, there's a little village in, and then all the all the brands like Nike, Hoka, Adidas, da, 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 they all have little, what they call houses, and the athletes that are sponsored from them um, go to the their sort of brand house or whatever, and it's got all the new kits, it's got all the new shoes, you know, anything that's developing, it's got all that, and then it'll have like teas and coffees and drinks, you know, for the athletes to sit and have a little gathering and a chat. And so myself and Kirsty Wade were um, out walking and we were sort of walking past, you know, these sort of things. And we went into Azix and there was a guy called Nagoshi, a Japanese um, guy. And he was he was in the in, in their booth, if you know what I mean. And we were looking at all the gear and he was speaking away and speaking away. And then he says to me, oh, um, I think he had noticed me because like in the heat, there was a Japanese girl that collapsed and... Um, I'd finished my heat and nobody was going out to pick her up. And we did our heat at 11 o'clock in the day, so it was even warmer and, you know, tougher. And so I went out and I picked her up and I hauled her over to the, the shade of the tunnel. And then in the paper the next day, it was like all, like, I was getting presents sent from the Japanese people saying, oh, you have honoured our athlete, you know, sort of saved her life sort of thing. So I think he kind of recognised me from that, you know, because I was in the newspaper for helping her. It was a big picture of the two of us, like, you know, me limping her off. And um, he said to me, oh, I know who you are. And he says, uh, you've got the final. And he says, you want the heat and da-da-da. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, um, who, who's your sponsor? And I says, I've not got a sponsor. And he's like, you've not got a sponsor? And I'm like, no. And he actually signed me up there and then on the spot. And he said to me, pick a shoe. And I says, um, I'll, I'll take that one because there was only one shoe that had like a wedge on it. And I knew that the Mondo was like really hard. So I wanted a shoe that had a wedge. And he goes, no, 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 you can't get that one. And I'm like, why not? He says, because that it was the cheapest one there. It was like £14 for a pair. <laughs> it was like really, really cheap. There's no technology in it whatsoever. And he says, no, no, no. He says, uh, you need to pick from these ones, which was like the higher end range ones. And I says, no, no, I want that one. 
<laughs> so I picked this one and he was, he, he was like, not very happy. And I'm like, no, no, that's the one I want. And then when I, when I won, I obviously my feet were just like, you know, hot because I, and so, uh, you know, I didn't plan it or anything. I just hold my spikes off and I was like waving to people and then people were getting pictures and here's me with these like really cheap classic spikes. <laughs> and it became like an iconic picture for them because it, like everybody takes their shoes off now and does it, you know, but nobody did that back then. I think I was this, one of the first ones to actually get the old brand on and like without doing it consciously, I didn't mean to do it. It was just my feet were hot. I think I also wiped my nose with my socks, which wasn't the nicest thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's by the by as well, eh? Which was noticed. But yeah, you know, so he signed me on the spot. And um, to be honest, they were like, a, 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 you know, they were absolutely brilliant supporting me through all my injuries. Um, that's why I'm so happy that Ailish is with them now because they're a company that's very... Um, family orientated and they keep in touch with you even like years and years later like I'm not sponsored from them at all now and like I'll still get an odd email or a you know a happy birthday wish or you know just little things that they still remember you by which I think is great what do you what do you think of all these new funky shoes that are coming out I think technology's ruined the sport eh? and, I, and everybody can sit there and say yeah I'm an old fogey and I'm jealous because people are running faster than me which you know I've been told and all that sort of thing to me um you know technology is advancement and it happens for me I think it's just one step too far because it's very much uh, a branded led technology advancement like when I used to run, I used to run in a cinder track, which was, you know, it's a slow surface. And then they got tartan and then they got mondo. So, you know, there's been a development of the surface that you run on. Yes, that makes everybody faster. So we all run faster on mondo than we did on tartan and what we did on cinders. But the difference of being on a surface is that everybody on that start line is running on the same surface now. But everybody on that start line is not running with the same technology of shoe. Now, people could sit there and say, well, okay, Let's all buy Nikes. But if you're in ASICs, who are, by the way, giving you a sponsorship, which is your living, or Hoko, or Adidas, you know, because Nike do not sponsor everybody, you've got to run in your branding. So I personally think that they should have a cap on the technology of shoe that's used for tech, for actual racing. So every brand has the same technology. You can colour it whatever way you want. You know, make it as you know as colourful, as bright, as funky as you want on the upper. But the actual spike shoe should be the same technology, so that everybody is in the same technology on the same surface, and then it's a level playing field. But these Nike shoes and that, and fair dues, you know, companies are catching up, but they're not the same. Yeah, they're not the same. And a half a second is gold to bronze could be, you know. Well, they're on about it was four percent. They're now saying it might be more than that because it depends on the athlete. So, and I just think it's one step too far. You know, I, I do believe technology happens and that we should all embrace technology, but I do believe in fairness and fairness of opportunity. And I think that, you know, everybody should be, it's like cycling and swimming. They both had the same issues. Now, skin suits came out and the swim, the swim governing body banned them because they said, no, because not everybody's going to have the same technology of those skins. So everybody swims in the same swimsuit. And that's fair. And it was the same with the bikes. You know, you were getting all these like different technologies coming out in bikes and they banned that as well and said, no, the bike frame has to be the same for everybody, which I think is fair. And in and, and athletics, the sprinters, they have a sprint spike, which they've banned because they've said, oh, we don't want the world records breaking. But so it's okay to break the endurance world records, but it's not okay to break the sprints world records. How is that fair? 
what would make them do that? Is there, what would be the reason behind it's that? It's marketing, isn't it? Right. Like you've got, you know, does anybody want Bolt out of the record books? Probably not. Right. Do you want the umpteenth Kenyan that's got the world records? <laughs> Probably doesn't matter. You know, it's all about fairness and, you know, fairness comes in all walks of life. And I just feel that as far as the technology of shoes, it's not at a level playing field at the moment in time. On the subject of Kenyans, what would you have been like as a runner if you trained at altitude? I tried altitude a couple of times, but I didn't have the scientific back. Like, you know, Ailish uses altitude all the time and we know the scientific base of it and it works really well. I got it wrong all the time. And I found out later, later, later in life that my body is slow to react. So when when I was getting told, oh, you know, run on X, Y, Z days, it was too early for me or it'd be too late for me. I tried it twice and I, I just didn't like it at all. And I put a lot of effort into it as well. I mean, one of the hardest sessions I've ever done was, you know, I was up at... Um, Mexico City, which is like really high, it's about 7,000 feet. And I did an 18 mile run and then five by a K after it. And I honestly, it about killed me. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And I came back and ran like a donkey. <laughs> you know, and I put all that effort and I thought, you know, it's not worth me doing all this work and not having the guarantee, you know, the sort of a level of guarantee when I go down that the shape that I'm in and not because I got altitude wrong. So that's why I, I used to always opt for heat and humidity. But I'm a firm believer that if you go to heat and humidity, especially if you go to humidity, it stresses the body so much that um, it's the same equivalent to what you do if you do go to altitude. You know, because you go to altitude just to stress the body and get uh, red blood cells. If you go to heat and humidity, the stress on the body as well also creates a lot of things that are, are big advantages for you. So um, I, I was I opted more for the heat and humidity. You mentioned Ailish there, and obviously, obviously training with, with you as well. We'd love to actually get her on in, in the future, but we don't want to disturb the preparation for, the, for Tokyo uh, for her as well. But yeah. is this the first time she'll be doing the 10K? So sort of emulating yeah. you here or she's moving, she's moving up in distance. Um me Ailish will run the marathon at the end of the day because that's what she's that's what she's built for to do. But again, I've I've had a progression with her and she's just building up to things. But yeah, the this time will be the first time for 10k, but she's still got to do the qualifying. So she's got the time. 3158. Is it 3058? Anyway, she's got the time. Um <laughs> and she's got to do the trial on the 5th of June. Right, so okay. So she's got to finish the top two in the trial. And then that would be a cross for her. Thank you. What will happen if she beats your times? What's the household going to be like? I'm getting used to it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually like, a, actually, it was, it's 30 58 because, uh, like, my record's 30 57. She was less than a second off it. <laughs> <laughs> but she's she's a better runner than me. Um, you know, I'm, I've got no two, two ways about it. Like, you know, she's more talented. She's got more talent in her body than what I've got. Um, I, I was just a bit more robust than Ailish, but she's definitely more talented than me. Do you think she'll get your, your marathon record? She'll annihilate it. Really? Annihilate it. Yeah. Yeah, she, she'll be far better than me over the marathon. What is life like out in Doha for you then? What is it you, what is it you do um, on a sort of day-to-day basis now and how are things? It's, it's, it's okay. I wouldn't say that, you know, I'm at my happiest because obviously I, um, I miss my kids. I miss coaching Ailish hands-on. So there's a lot of differences that I miss. But I've been very, very lucky with what's happened to me in my life that I've been able to start again. And I'm in a position that I can support my kids and what they want to do again. You know, so it, it's been a, a bit of a means to an end that's worked out really well. And I'm happy enough here now. 
you know the only 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 bad thing is you know you do miss your family and your friends yeah. back home but you really don't get home an awful lot um I would like to get home more my daughter's coming out or she's joining me this year so that'll be good but yeah you know it's been it's been a difficult very 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 difficult latter part of my life and um I'm happy to see I'm still on my feet and still standing and smiling with it all so you can do just as we're wrapping things up out of everything you've done and everything you've won and achieved, is there one that stands out as your greatest achievement for you? I think, uh, to be honest, like um, the the biggest thing that I'm proud of more than anything is my kids. My kids have all, like, you know, they're absolutely fantastic. They're great people. You know, they're they're great to you know they they've turned into fantastic adults, which I'm very very proud of. As far as my running career, um, I couldn't I couldn't pinpoint any one thing but for me running was all about and, and it stemmed from when I was a little kid for me it was all about you know how fast could I be you know how you know um I wanted to be the fastest and I never fulfilled that aim but for me when I got world records that meant that I was the fastest person in the world and to me sometimes I sit back and I look back at what I've done and it's like it's a different person it's like it never happened to me because it's it's like I'm just so far removed from it now. But, you know, to, to say you had a world record or you were a world champion or, you know, one London marathon, you know, people out here don't even really know me and they'll, they'll go and run, you know, a virtual marathon in five hours and they'll say to me, oh, what's your time? And I'll say, well, you know, I won London and they'll be like, and they can't contemplate, like... I did two in that time. <laughs> it's like, you know, really? And, I, and so, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't honestly say... Is there any one that's better than the other? Um, I think that the, the the biggest achievement is that, you know, from from what I came from to what I achieved was my biggest achievement because I achieved a lot, and you know, I I, I really I really was wasn't born into being successful and to sort of choose the right pathway and you know, to become the best in the world. I think it's it's an achievement that I'm proud of. And as I say, I don't really think I could actually say anyone's better than the other. That's okay. And last question from me, for someone from someone that was the best in the world, but started off as that kid at school getting bullied, you know, bullying's a terrible thing. Even, even nowadays, it's, it's even worse, cyberbullying and all this. What would you say any anyone really listening to this that maybe is being bullied what message would you give them? You know, bull- bullying is one of the the worst kind of inflictions that are put onto kids because kids suffer in silence. And, you know, you can look at a kid and think that they're perfectly happy and they suffer in silence. And, um, like, for me, I was bullied immensely at school to the fact that, you know, I, I stopped going around with people. And it was just simply because they thought that I was getting big-headed because my name was in the paper or that I wasn't um, hanging out with them to go out with the boys and the gangs that they were hanging out with. And it got so bad that when I was like 13, one of the girls in the group that I used to hang out with organised for a Fintry girls gang group to come down to the training to beat me up. And like for months and months and months, I used to have to find different ways to run home and run back, to get back home to my house. And, you know, sometimes I'd train and I'd have to run five miles to get back. Sometimes Harry used to have to walk me along the road and then say, okay, you know, run now. 
and you, you'll be okay. So, you know, it, it really does affect you. And my, my thing to people that are being bullied, for one, is that, and it's a hard thing to say, is to believe in yourself. And although you're feeling at your worst possible place in life, that it does get better, but don't change who you are because someone's trying to force you to do it. You know, be you and be proud to be you. And to the bulliers, what I would say is you you really, like, if you're bullying someone now, it's not until you grow up and you have children of your own that you'll start realising just the impact that you had because people can be cruel in the world and it's not until it happens to you or your own that you actually realise what effect it has on people. So if you are bullying someone, you know, really take take a moment and think about how that person's feeling and why it's making you feel better doing it. And as I say, you know, I, I do think that you could, if you're true to yourself and, you know, and if you are being bullying, talk to somebody, you know, there's, there's no harm in talking to somebody about it because I wish I had, because I kept it all to myself and it really did affect me for a lot of years. On, on what happened and it was a shock when I found out who actually organised it all and I didn't find out until I was in my 20s who actually organised it and when I found out that it gave me some peace of mind because of who it was and what happened to that person. Excellent advice there Liz. On, on that you. note we'd like to say thank you so much for this. Thank you guys. It was an enjoyable. I hope you enjoyed your wine through that. I didn't see you drinking it. it more like- <laughs> we drank a few, don't we? Don't worry. Thank you very much for coming on, Liz. No bother. Have a great day, guys. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Smokies and Wine podcast, sponsored by Clack and View Wealth Management, working with you today to plan for your tomorrow.